views and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Hello and welcome to this broadcast of Black Talk Radio News with Scotty Reed as I broadcast from behind the enemy lines of USA Inc. Uh, y'all give us just a second. We're having a little audio problem here. Give me just a second. Okay. We're getting a lot of noise coming off the guest line. Um, we had a time trying to connect, but I do have Sapiway Baleke. Baleke, am I saying that correct, brother? <laughs> it's Baleka. Baleka. You had just told me that. So we got Sapiwe <laughs> Baleke on. So rough start, but it's on me uh, for not finding out whether or not he was in the country. And so without going through all of that, we finally were able to connect with him. I've been looking forward to this program for a very long time. So let me just um, give y'all an introduction to what we'll be discussing over the next hour um, now, he has led a very interesting uh, life that took him from his North Carolina community to uh, HBCU, which was Fix University, uh, also the U.S. Olympic tr- uh, swim trials. Uh, he also attended Yale University, Yale University and was part of both the civil rights movement and the black liberation struggle in his community. He was mentored by George Edwards of the New Haven Black Panther Party and began to organize and raise money for the Black Panther political prisoners and started working with the international concerned family and friends of Mumia Abu-Jamal and the MOVE organization. He is also a member of Encobra, which we just got through broadcasting uh, on the network last night, Conversations Reparations, which is sponsored by Encobra. Um, but he's also a documentarian. And he's joining us today because I reached out to him after finding an article that he wrote on Mansa Musa. And his article that that um, I have linked to for those that want to read it, it is on Balanta.org. Uh, the title of the article is The Mali Kingdom and Mansa Musa Were Imperialist Slave Traders Revisiting African History from the Point of View of the People Who Were Oppressed. And I mean, that just really says it all um, in the title, is looking at it from the point of view of the people who were oppressed in Africa. And I think African Americans, black people here, in the United States, black people in the diaspora, that we tend to look at Africa through the lens of the history that we've been given here in the West. And that's kind of incorrect when you're looking at it from the point of the rulers or those writing about the rulers or those bragging about the riches and, and the wealth of people like Mansa Musa, but, you know, like I had asked the question which stirred up, you know, a little bit of emotions on the internet when, you know, I mentioned that this man was a slaver. Y'all keep talking about Mansa Musa um, and how much wealth he had, but how did he obtain that wealth? And, you know, as a new abolitionist in this new abolitionist movement, I got to ask that question concerning slavery. And and so, Sapirway, 
Uh, my first introduction to Mansa Musa, unfortunately, was through a Budweiser uh, promotional material in the bar. You know, they had these promotions called <laughs> The Great Kings and Queens of Africa, and that was actually my first exposure to some of those kings and queens. Um, and so it wasn't later until I, much later, you know, in my 40s, in, around 2013, when I started questioning all African uh, history as it relates to, to famous people and people not so famous. As I began to study abolitionist history, I would come across abolitionists who were uh, for example, I can't recall her uh, her name, but there was a Nigerian businesswoman who was a, was in the business of enslaving and uh, selling uh, African people, African descended people. And then when she found out the harshness of the brut and the brutality that they were facing, that made her become an abolitionist. But you know, I've read another story about another Ghanaian prince who got kidnapped. He was supposed to be traveling to England to go study and, and you know, be a spy for his father. And the slave trader, the, uh, uh, the captain of the ship, ended up selling selling him. And then even though they, they were able to obtain his freedom, that didn't change his mind. He's still within slavery. And so I said that because I hear excuses from people about Oh, slavery was different in Africa. They were like basically like family and all that. And I'm like, no, no, that I don't think that's true. So let me ask you, why did you write about Mansa Musa in the way that you did from the perspective of the oppressed? Had you come up against it with other people, you know, who were idolizing Mansa Musa? Can you tell us about that? Well, Scotty, I had a similar experience like yourself. Um, really, I suffered an identity crisis in the early 1990s when I was at Yale. Um, my slave name was of British and Spanish origin. So when I looked in the mirror, I said, why do I have a British name and a Spanish name when I clearly am black and am African? So from that moment, I really started to want to know what is my history? What is my place in the world? Like most Afro-descendants in the United States, we don't know what specific territory we came from. Mm -hmm. We don't know what specific language, you know, our ancestor, the one that actually survived the Middle Passage, that person came from a specific territory and came, uh, spoke a specific language and practiced a specific culture. And because of the ethnocide practiced against us, we don't, we don't know our own history. And as a result, we knew we came from somewhere in Africa. And so because we didn't have access to the information, most of us, we just grabbed on to anything we could find about Africa and just appropriated the entire general history of the continent as our own. And anything that 
sounded positive gave us some kind of pride and boosted our self-esteem. Well, in 2009, I took a DNA test and discovered that my paternal ancestors are the Balanta people who lived in their homeland of Nakra, which is modern-day Guinea-Bissau, which is where, um, where I am right now, where, where I'm talking to you from. I'm in my ancestral homeland. And once I found out that I was Balanta, naturally the first thing I wanted to do was study the Balanta people get all the information I could on Balanta. And I found out that there was very little. And so this intensified my desire to find out information. And one of the things that I learned was that the Balanta people, their name means those who resist. Um, their original name, Brasa, um, uh, means pure or those that remain. Um, and I started studying whatever information I could find. And one of the things I learned was that the Balanta people, they were originally in the Nile Valley, and they had rejected the earliest attempts to form social hierarchies in, in case systems in pre-dynastic Kemet. Um, in fact, when Narmer invaded Kemet, uh, and they had three confederations at that time, the ancient Balanta ancestor said, nope, this is going to lead to social inequality. This goes against our great belief. And so they migrated from the Nile Valley um, west, first to Lake Chad. They stayed there. Then invaders came. They kept moving west. And so this is how they came into the territory of what eventually would become the, the Mali Empire. And one of the things that I learned from the Balanta elders was that um, during that period, right, the Balanta ancestors lived south of the Mali Empire. And because they never developed um, social hierarchies and they had a society that was egalitarian, um, they didn't have chiefs, they didn't have kings, they didn't have leaders. The highest sovereign unit in Balanta society was the, the, the head of the household. Um, so they didn't have chiefs, leaders, and kings. And so when the Mali Empire tried to assert themselves over the ancient Balanta people, right, they resisted. And the elders tell this story about how when the Mandinka of the Mali Empire would go south and raid our villages, the Balanta people would gather everyone in the village and flee because they valued human life more than property. When they fled, these invaders from the Mali Empire would seize the Balanta cattle and then return back to wherever they came from. The Balanta people at that time would then take their you know, they, they organized their society in these age grades. And so there was an age grade of young men, like 18 to 30, that was like the warrior class. And the warrior class's responsibility was to sneak go, at nighttime, sneak into these Mali um, villages, and go retrieve their cattle. Now, 
the history books, when they do mention Balanta and the Mali Empire at this time, they say that the Balanta were cattle thieves mm. and that the Mali Empire right, um, cut off the hands of these Balanta thieves. Well, it was my rereading of history that showed that that wasn't true. If somebody steals your cattle and you go uh, and get it and take it back, that's not called theft, that's called reparations. So that's when I really started to question the, the stories and the history that were taught to me. And I started doing a rereading of all of African history and telling it from the point of view of my own Balanta heritage. Mm. So I knew where I fit into the world. And that's what led me to really understand what was going on in the Mali Empire under Mansa Musa and how it was affecting my family. And that's how I started that article. And when you mentioned the other sources and you had to reread everything, what were some of those sources? I imagine Western scholars, historians, even uh, university, you know, produce materials. Because when I when I started, um, uh, you know, researching Africa, the first thing that I came across was the kingdom of Dahomey and their role in the transatlantic slave trade and, and being, you know, um, engaged in all of that, trading human beings for European-made goods, which the European-made goods were likely produced with the enslaved labor, so a vicious uh, circle there. And But, you know, that came, I believe that came from a U.K. educational source when, when I read that. Now, in terms of the skin color of the person, I did not look it up. I didn't look up their name or, or anything. I just thought this was interesting. Let me find some other sources. And and so, but when I started talking to other people, you know, uh, within my class, or excuse me, not within my class, but within my social group here in the United States, you know, they accused me of 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 being brainwashed by white historians and what have you, and saying no, we didn't enslave anyone. And I, I you know, I just thought about it. I was like. Now, how likely is it that some Europeans got off a ship and just ran up into Africa and started kidnapping people? That can't be correct. If you believe that, then you must have thought Africans to be very, very weak, you know, in order for, a, you know, a small party of Europeans to just set up, set up shop like that. And so as I continue to, to study, you know, they made alliances uh, with, you know, different tribes, different kingdoms and what have you. And it was not them who were doing the capturing. It was certain kingdoms like Mali, like the kingdom of the home, the So, you know, I don't know if you started when you started researching this from the um, perspective of the oppressed, if you shared it with anyone in your circle and did you get a similar reaction about, oh, oh, you know, you just brainwashed and, you know, that's not possible. We didn't practice chattel slavery. Well, so when I first started my research, what I did was I up and left the United States and I went to go live in Ethiopia um, in the Nile Valley which is where a lot of, you know, our history begins. I wanted to start at the beginning. Um, now, 
in order to really do that, um, the documents that predate Kemet are actually written in our DNA. If you want to go back and learn about your ancient ancestral history, say in 42,000 BC, mm -hmm. you have to unlock and study the DNA. So some of my sources came from genetic scientists from all over the world who were studying the DNA, right, um, uh, especially that DNA that related to the earliest migrations of what we call, what, what Western scholarship calls Homo sapiens sapiens, but what the Bantu oral tradition um, called Baba Amenlope. So the first thing I did was try to collect s sort of the oldest or you know ancient oral um, stories from people like Credo Mutois and other griots, and compare that with the genetic, the latest genetic science. Now I got some pushback on that. There are some people who think that even though genetics is universal, every human being that has ever existed <laughs> has DNA. So it's universal. But there are some people that think that understanding genetics and genetic science can only be done by white people. Right? When some you know, when Afro descendant people start talking about DNA, you know, I got put oh that's a white person science. As if black people, Afro-descended people, can't study the universal laws and principles <laughs> that exist that govern all of creation and understand it for ourselves. So why some people think that only white people can study DNA and Afro-heritage people can't is beyond me. Those people are brainwashed. They're, those are the victims of white supremacy, the people who discount genetic science thinking that it's a white man's science when it's a human being science. Any human being can study it and understand it. Um, other sources that I used, right, included, um, you know, uh, African literature like the Epic of Sunjata, which is written by African people at the time and passed on through oral history and eventually written history. There are lots of rich resources from our own people at that time, right, um, that you can reference. Likewise, as you know, there was a lot of international trade at that time. So people from other cultures, whether they be Arabic cultures or European cultures or Jewish cultures or what have you, have their own travel diaries. And as a scholar, our job is to consult all of them mm. and use our own inherent powers of interpretation and insight to take from all of those sources and put together a narrative that explains in a logical, rational, and even a propagandistic fashion your history, your story. That's all history is, is certain people gathering evidence that exists either as archaeological evidence or oral evidence or written evidence, looking at all of it and then saying what they think it means. That's all history is. So I did that. I gathered all the references I could find from all cultures, 
right? And then try to find where are the Balanta people, which is my heritage? Where are they in all of these things? I had to study Balanta spirituality and culture and, 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 and science and worldview so that not only could I just identify where my ancestors were in this world history, but also interpret it from their own viewpoint. And once I was able to do that, then I understood my own history and I realized no university could teach this and I had a responsibility to teach my sons. So I wrote three volumes on the history of Balanta people, starting from 42,000 BC all the way up to the present. So I covered the period of the Mali Kingdom and Mansa Musa and all of those sources, they all agree. That man did not mine gold himself. There's no possible logical way that this man could have done his own labor and acquired all that gold. All historical references talk about the immense international trade that the Mali Kingdom was engaged in with established trade routes. And they weren't just trading gold or salt or ivory. They were trading slaves. And there's a well-documented slave trade. Now, the clinching evidence, and this is in my article, is that the best Mandinka-trained griots that are alive today recently revealed their conspiracy to, even though they knew the true history of the slave trading heritage of their own Mandinka people and the Mali Empire, even though they knew it, they had conspired all until like the like through the 1980s and 1990s, they had conspired not to share it with anyone until recently. Yes, I read that so, in your article that they were sworn to yes. secrecy. Yes, so, you know, the informa- me, I'm a truth seeker. I'm not going to just glorify all things African when I know good goddamn well <laughs> not everything in Africa is to be glorified. I'm a truth seeker trying to understand who I am and my place in the world. And so when I came across this information, I needed to share it and talk about the fact that there's a Western bias in studying Africa. They think that the mark of civilization is establishing a state society. Mm -hmm. So when you have people that rejected that form of social organization that produces massive inequality, those people are written out of history as inconsequential or primitive when their s- social structures are highly complex. Mm-hmm. And so during you know, the Western scholarship, they always want to study the great kingdoms, and they never study the, the other people that um, you know, existed simultaneously within and next to those kingdoms that had their own alternative social structure. They get relegated as insignificant in history. So I got fed up with all of the, let's just glorify the great kingdoms of Africa as if that's the mark of civilization and development, right? Uh, I got tired of that. So we started coming up with our own narrative to tell our own story. Well, part part of it, I think, and you may agree, is psychological. Um, when you are on this side of the world, in the Western Hemisphere, under white domination, and all of these neg- negative images and negative stories about Afro-descendant people, 
I, I can imagine that would on some people give them low self-esteem. And so here comes a, a story about this king who might have been the wealthiest in the world or or that that queen, that warrior queen over over there. And without going any further and doing the amount of research that you have done, we'll just latch on to that. And, and it's like we're trying yes. to prove to ourselves and other people, hey, we're just as good as white people. Instead of just, you know, recognizing the truth, instead of trying to prove that you're just as good as white folks. I agree. I agree with you. Right. Listen, the mental slavery and the tragic damage of ethnocide, eight or more generations of it, produces um, this very problem that you just described that I agree with. Um, and it's also indicative of a person's values, okay? If you value, and if you equate um, economic and material wealth with greatness, then you would be satisfied with the Mansa Musa narrative, the popular narrative. And a lot of people are. I wasn't. But some P-Way, real quick though, but how can an Afro-descendant person like myself over here in the United States, we know slavery, our enslavement in this country was wrong, starting from the 1600s up until, like I proposed, that slavery's never been abolished. I'm part of a new abolitionist movement that points to the 13th Amendment Exception Clause, you know, except as punishment for crime. But how can how can we reject that or accept that this was a great human rights crime, but be so willing to accept the enslavement of other human beings in African history and worship somebody or idolize somebody like a Mansa Musa? To me, that that's a contradiction in my mind that I can't do both. Yes, it is a contradiction. Look, either we say. Look, if we're going to talk about the reparations, then we're admitting that there is some repair that has to be done. If we are going to say that slavery was a dehumanizing process, then the product of slavery is not human. They are dehumanized. And so, therefore, we're going to have to admit some uncomfortable truths, which is our DNA has been altered, our it's been replaced by artificial DNA, which produces artificial behavior, which was designed to benefit white supremacy. And so, yes, a lot of our thinking, a lot of our behavior, and our cognitive dissonance, dissonance is a real effect that we are suffering now. It's a real effect of the ethnocide. And so, if you know that, you aren't surprised by the contradictions that our own Afro-descendant people continue to entertain. Uh, right? If damage, if we're seeking reparations and we're saying we need to be repaired, then we accept that our psychology, our way of thinking, where we are in that process is still damaged. Some people are more healed than others 
some are you know more affected by it than others um and that's what our struggle is is to overcome that mm-hmm. and it's a long process not everybody is a scholar not everybody cares about the fine details of intellectualism or history um or or facts that's not their fault or our fault one of the things that that you um mentioned in the article and this kind of ties into what my previous statement about the mental enslavement and these contradictions in in our minds but you had wrote in the article that you thought promoting the slave traders of the great african kingdoms including Mansa musa is misguided this that is not what we should be teaching our children that because you become extremely wealthy by exploiting and enslaving people and this makes you great in history, we should be explaining that all such systems of exploitation are wrong, not glorifying them. And see, that's the culture that has been given to us. This is the culture that yes. is reinforced through through the materialism of hip hop, which isn't really hip hop anymore. I call it corporate rap. And and all, what is what are its central things? Getting money and getting things. That materialism. Um, you know, people worshiping in the hip hop community or idolizing people like uh, uh, Donald Trump, who may or may not be a billionaire. And and even now, as we see more and more, quote unquote, black billionaires, you know, come into existence. I think Kanye West is one is the latest one. I actually uh, had opportunity to interview Robert Johnson, a, a former owner of BET. And people, you know, it's like they have met a religious figure. They have such reverence for these people, but they're not thinking about, in my opinion, well, how do these people make their money? You know, um, Michael Jordan, I'm sure he made a lot of money off them shoes. But being that I used to work in the sourcing industry and talk to people in the textile industry that went over to China, that went over to Vietnam, that went over to the Philippines where Nike has these factories and stuff and these people working in deplorable conditions and their labor being being exploited. And it's like we don't even think about that. Well, I've heard you mention Neely Fuller before. And those that are familiar with him understand that what you're describing is white supremacy's use of showcaseism. Showcaseism, that's it. Where, yeah, where they are going to allow a number of Afro-descendant or non-white people, right, to be black capitalists, to succeed in an inherently exploitative system. So black capitalism can never be the solution to human equality. Um, Unfortunately, we live in a world, and if you're still in the land of your captivity in the United States, you live in a hyper-microcosm of that system. And so if if you're inundated for your entire life, with the values and the output of that system, it's going to be very difficult for you to have some sort of original alternative worldview and viewpoint because 
the values that we have, we get from the society that we're born into. We get them from our parents, from our teacher, from our you know schools that we go to, and from the culture at large. Um, there's not enough of our teachers out there who can teach these other narratives. And even those that do, the bottom line comes down to power. Mm. And capitalism has the power to enforce its will. So even if you get, you know, let's say you get a mystic, a sage, someone with an immense amount of wisdom and knowledge, when it comes to a contest of wills, right, I have my will, what I think should happen, versus your will, which is against or in opposition to mine, who has the power to enforce their will? And right now, the system of white supremacy has that power. And with it come all of the narratives that it has produced. So what good is telling the truth and putting out these other narratives if black capitalism can feed the city or the state, but your truth can't? Hmm. Hmm. That's in, that's that. I gotta eat. I gotta take care of my family. You okay? I don't want you to teach me about an alternative. I want you to provide it. That's the struggle we have. Something um, that I thought was profound in your article on the Mali Kingdom, where you you talked about why certain African kings, um, certain African quote unquote warriors are and, and queens are elevated, is because it matches the political system. You know, we're just talking about capitalism. It matches. So why would but wiser? invest some money in into you know coming up with these paintings and these displays of great african kings what why would budweiser a, a white-owned company you know of course they wanted to sell us some beer but why did they pick those people and i think your article kind of speaks to that can you speak on that because it the people they chose mirrors the political systems they want us to buy into here you just I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> you you just explained what I would have said. Right? Western, you know, the Budweiser and the capitalists are in league with and draw from Western education and institutions. And so the Western education and institutions says these are the people in Africa that are worth something. So if you want to sell more beer to more Afro-descendant people, you want to market to them, you're going to present to them an image that's going to resonate with them positively so that it can be conflated and associated with your product. That's it. Simple. Mm -hmm. Drink this beer and Mansa Musa, the richest man on earth, somehow they get conflated. Mm -hmm. And then it makes Budweiser give the appearance that they're not racist because that's part of the system of white supremacy. They want to confuse you into thinking <laughs> that there is no racism. So if they have a system which is exploiting you, but their marketing campaign is glorifying you, then that's going to create confusion. They're going to get, what, your, your dollars, they're going to get your economic support, 
and you're going to get what from them? Mm-hmm. A sense of, I don't know, momentary pride because you saw an image of an African king, right? An image that the, this country and these big multinational corporations have denied you from actually becoming. And that, and that individual could have been the you, very one. Right, to have the power. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, go, go ahead. Well, I was just saying that individual, we don't know until we've done the uh, extensive research like you have done. And I applaud you for that because I'm I'm still, you know, trying to um, um, research my genetic map. I know about my, my um, maternal grandmother's side, um, but I don't know so much about my paternal grandfather's side except for we he his his line might have been enslaved in the mine the gold mines one of the very first gold mines in the united states here in north carolina the reed mines um Mm -hmm. and so i'm still i'm still searching i'm still searching but again you know i'm thinking about okay we want to debate or if we get in debate not that we want to with some white person who wants to glorify the Confederacy and then wants to say as an excuse for for their evil. Well, Africans sold people into slavery too. And then you're sitting there with a Mansa Musa t-shirt on. How are you going to respond to that when they point to that shirt? If they know that information is that this man, that they're actually telling the truth. That that just well, presents a, a dilemma to me, and I don't think a lot of people even work those things out in their minds. Well, they don't. First of all, I wouldn't even be having a conversation with the white. What do you call them? Confederate. I wouldn't even be having a debate with them on this. Two. Yes, it's true. Africans did sell each other into slavery. The point of knowing the truth of history is so that, for example, I'm a Balanta descendant. One of my best friends is a Mandinka descendant. When we sit down together and we talk about African history and Pan-Africanism and unity of Afro-descendant people so that we can over the system of white supremacy we sit down and we say hey look in the past your people fought and enslaved my people that's how we got into this mess Mm -hmm. so let us learn from that that's how you end tribalism Right. you have to tell the truth about it you have to tell the truth about systems of social inequality all these people taking DNA tests and bragging about, oh, I'm descended from a king or a queen. So you think that makes you better from someone who's not? Right. See, we have to have a critical understanding and learn not to reproduce the systems that produced our predicaments now. Right. I'm not into the African royalty, we're kings and queens. From the Balanta perspective, that predates Kemet by 30,000 years, that was the downfall of the peaceful, harmonious society when everybody worked together and everybody ate together. But if you live in this world now where, you know, you have this idea where you have a president or you have a king or royalty or monarchy, things that we've been denied, so we think grabbing onto those things is a good thing, 
because we've never bought that that's part of the problem in Africa hmm. all throughout African history in every period in every geographic location most African people want and, and this is what social scientists um, uh, like uh, Vancina will talk about nowhere in history will you find a society that once they went from um, having a chief or a king they never um, went back to not having that hierarchy so when you find people that exist today like the Balanta people who, who still live in a society without chief leaders and kings that are egalitarian they're, they're, one of the, they're very special because once you develop social classes no society ever goes back to uh, egalitarianism I would say that they are living a dream. And so they're truly we have free. a perspective on history that, you know, wherever you have. No, continue, please. Well, in so much as it's possible to live a dream when the whole world is governed by a system of white supremacy. Right. And capitalism. Right. right that, you know. Yeah. Um, one of my mentors once told me. You can't have a um, a healthy spirit and a healthy mind and a healthy body living in a sick society. Mm. Okay, so we have to be careful, right? Nobody on this planet is healthy because it's dominated, right, by a, a sickness. Mm. I have, um, as we get ready to come right? to a close, an entire world system of inequality so nobody on this planet is healthy right not if you have Mansa Musa's money or you have John Henrik Clark's knowledge or you have LeBron James's basketball skills mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so Piway, um as we get ready to wrap it up because it, it seems like our connection is eroding and I think we've you know pretty much covered a lot of stuff man I really appreciate you connecting with me and I hope this won't be the last time but but if you will answer this question for me since you are have done the research you are there on the continent when people tell me that it was different forms of slavery and it wasn't so brutal it wasn't brutal like the white man's and and is that what what would you say to that? Sapirway? It looks like we might have lost that connection. We certainly did lose that connection. It was very tough uh, connecting with him. Um, we're actually through Facebook because the other means we weren't able um, to connect. But I'm going to reach out to him this afternoon and see if we can get him back and hopefully we'll have everything worked out so we don't have these problems. Um, so, you know, based off of what I've read, and I hope people go read his research on the Mali Kingdom. Again, it's on Belanta.org. I have linked to the article. And the name of the article is The Mali Kingdom and Mansa Musa were imperialist slave traders revisiting African history from the point of view of the people who were oppressed. I hope I hope you go check that out. I hope you go check that out. And I'm going to say this, though. He really hit it the nail on the head when 
acknowledging the truth, that's not bad on you. That's not bad on me. It's not like my name, you know, that I did these things to, to these various people. You didn't do it. So if you didn't do it, why is it so hard for you to process the truth that slavery happens all over the world, including in Africa? Okay? My self-esteem is not caught up in some king or some queen or, or anything like that. My self-esteem is based on my intellectual abilities and the confidence that was instilled in me by my parents. That's where my self-esteem comes from. I don't need to prove I'm just as good as or better than this other group, you know, simply because. It shouldn't work like that. We should value all human beings and, and what have you. But I'm not going to beleaguer the point. Um, I want to thank P. Way for coming on and joining us. Again, I will try to get him back on. Uh, we had a lot of problems trying to connect because he's in Africa and I'm here in the United States, but definitely we'll have this worked out the next time. You've been listening to Black Talk Radio News with Scotty Reed, and please stay tuned to our Facebook page, Facebook, blacktalkradionetwork.com. Follow us on the page. That way you can find out what programs are coming up. And of course, you can find many different podcasts, various podcasts on blacktalkradionetwork.com. A lot of uh, uh, great people on there putting out a lot of good information. Um, then you also have some that's on a little lighter side of things, like talking about relationships in love. And then, of course, we got the three guys, and they always bring the music. So, yeah, definitely check out blacktalkradionetwork.com. With that said, peace and blessings to all y'all. Stay safe out there during this coronavirus pandemic. Peace.